Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I am your host, Leo Dion. Today we have with us Aaron Douglas. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? I am doing great. How are you doing? Good. I'm really happy to have you on today. This is a really important topic that I have been thinking about quite a bit on several projects that I've been working on. Why don't you introduce yourself before we get started talking about local database storage? Sure. Uh, So like I said, my name is Aaron Douglas. Uh, I work for a company called Automatic. May or may not have heard of us, uh, but we are the company behind WordPress.com and now Tumblr and Simple Notes and WooCommerce. And I am a mobile team lead. I've been with the company for seven years. Uh, we are fully remote, so we all work from home. Of course, everybody works from home nowadays. <laughs> I lead the team that runs the uh, WooCommerce mobile app, so you can run your e-commerce business through your WordPress site on your phone. Um, that's been the last three years or so. But when I started, I worked primarily on the WordPress app for iOS. And that's been sort of my thing and strong focus on storage and core data and the API layers of the app as well. But I have been working in mobile since 2008, since the app store opened. So there's a lot of a lot of good memories and a lot of difficult things with storage along the ways. And ever since I switched to mobile, it's been really I've been enjoying it quite a bit, having the software that I write in people's hands. Yeah, I forget how much is under the automatic umbrella, Tumblr and WooCommerce, which is your specific focus. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's quite a suite of apps on there. I use the WordPress app quite a bit for my websites. Cool. So yeah, fantastic work you guys do. Yeah, it's been an interesting ride over the seven years with all of our code being open source and Everybody can see your mistakes out in the clear, and uh, also you can show the successes. So that's that's the interesting thing with open source. And we get people that are contributors that don't work for our company. Of course, the unique thing too is that the WordPress app technically belongs to the WordPress Foundation. WordPress itself is an open source project from the foundation. Automatic is a commercial venture that the founder of WordPress created to do a commercial hosting version. So WordPress.com is not WordPress, just like the WordPress mobile app is not specific to WordPress.com, but it does work with WordPress.com. Yeah. So let's get into local database storage. Um, So typically when folks build an app, a lot of times they can just use some online resource, uh, especially like Firebase, CloudKit, Rust calls, things like that. Why should people even look into having a database on device? Well, I think the the go-to answer that everyone always thinks of is offline mode. Just being able to support an experience for your user when the connection may not be great or there is no connection at all. Or if you're in a scenario where you can't have a connection, like on an airplane, well, there's Wi-Fi in most airplanes nowadays, but... But it's not perfect by any means. <laughs> correct. This is true. This is true. And it's typically blocked and shaped and all that fun stuff. So, right. Yeah, the database in my mind is is fairly essential for any type of app that is more than just trivial. There's a lot of things you can do with, you know, like URL caching and uh, you can rely on that. But you don't know when the app is going to be 
offloaded and killed and brought in the background. So if, if you want to have some sort of consistent experience, then you have to persist data in some fashion for your users. It's funny you, you mentioned that because even if you are connected, we did uh, our last episode on machine learning and, and we had Jameson on from Fritz and their big push was that just doing machine learning locally is always going to be faster and more beneficial. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways you can say the same thing, especially for more complex data, you're better off storing some of that stuff locally anyways, even if it is offline and it isn't updated very often, there's a lot of benefit to just having that quick access on device. Yep. And even even the screens that maybe, I'll, I'll use the scenario of the WooCommerce app just because that's what I do every day. Uh, if you're loading an order up to see what somebody had placed an order for and you want to see the details of a product, products themselves probably don't change as often. So yeah, that totally makes sense to save those into a database so you can fetch them really quick. But even something that's sort of temporary, uh, maybe it's still a great idea to have that in the database because when you're scrolling uh, through the list of orders, you don't want that to be hitting an API while you're scrolling unless it's you know loading the next screen of orders. But if you want to have like a non-jarring experience going back and forth, like that data has to be persisted somewhere for the UI to be responsive. Um, it's worth caching things that even maybe don't even need to be used at 20 seconds later. But you never know when you could possibly use those again. The caveat, though, is that you don't know when those are no longer considered clean. Like, when does that data get dirty? That's really the big who knows. Yes, um, and we'll get to the question about syncing cloud data, local data, yep. <laughs> in a bit. Because <laughs> that, <is a>, <laughs> that is a major topic. Yes, it is. So the simplest way, uh, especially in iOS development, to go about it is using just like a JSON file or text file or even just like user defaults to store your data. What, what's your thought on that as far as getting started with something like that? The way I look at it, if you have an idea and you don't have a ton of experience using Core Data or any other third-party library, or even if you do, sometimes it's easier just to get started with the simplest solution. And while I know that there's negative connotations with putting everything into user defaults or into JSON file or even a dictionary and using NS Coder to write it to a file, uh, if it solves the problem for you to be able to move forward to figure out like user experience, proof of concept type of stuff, why not? And I've been aware of plenty of production apps that still do that. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in the simplest solution that scales the best. And if it's easy enough to replace that later on with something a little bit more complex, and then, you know, I would just move forward with what's easiest at the time. Yeah, I think that's a really good, that's a really good analysis as far as, any developer just like keeping it as simple as possible when you first start off. Mm-hmm. It gets to a point where if it starts getting way too complex and you know you get something that's very database typical, like a foreign key or a relationship, that's where like I think having a real database is gonna be helpful. So why not just install something like Postgres or MySQL or Mongo on your iPhone uh, app or something like that. Is there ways you can do something like that when you're setting up a database on your phone? Sure. I mean, you can, it's, if you can compile it and see, you can compile it for the iPhone, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, back in the day when SQLite wasn't even supported on iPhone OS, uh, there were ways of compiling it so that you could get an actual database 
in the uh, the phone. Or if serious? you wanted to make a... Yeah, you could... So I think SQLite was there in iPhone OS 2.0, uh, okay. but there were some terrible optimizations that weren't included. And I know of plenty of people that pre-compile or compiled their own version of SQLite to be able to do things on the phone. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that was magic back then. Right. Still today, actually. But you don't really want to run uh, an app server for <laughs> a database because there's so many concerns on the phone. There's you know power, battery. There's optimizations for uh, task switching between things. And uh, to be honest, like something like Postgres was probably never meant to be on for two minutes and then backgrounded and brought back and... You know, there's so much that can happen and transactions need to close quickly if you're being backgrounded. Um, the phone can lose battery power and just die. There's a reason why Apple has so many art- articles for development on energy efficiency. Right. And it's like, yeah, like you said, running a server on an iPhone, it's not really what it's it's meant for. Now, that being said, uh, there are plenty of solutions that I know we'll eventually we'll talk about a couple, uh, but there are ways of standing up a server in your code. Like if you're using Cassandra or CouchDB, um, you are bringing up a server within your app. You just don't really use it directly, but it's very responsive to being shut down. Uh, it's very local storage. It's not meant to be like an enterprise type server in your app. So it's that time of the year you're probably trying to build that brand new app for iOS 14 that you want to get out in time for fall. But one thing you should probably think about is how are people going to find this new app? You could try to rely on your social media feed, but it might be a good idea to take a look at App Store optimization. And that's where App Figures comes in. We've talked about app figures before on this podcast, and we've had Ariel, their CEO, on the show, talking about how you can optimize your app for the App Store. And they've just released brand new ASO teardowns, which have taken a look at some of the big names on the App Store, but also looked at some indie apps like FootMob, which I'll have a link in the show notes below. These teardowns take a look step-by-step at what these apps are doing right and what they're doing wrong to get their name out on the App Store. And just recently, they've launched a brand new competitor intelligence report, which is live right now. These new competitor reports from App Figures give you the ability to see competitor downloads, build performance benchmarks, and see new trends as they happen. You can see it in action by clicking the link in the episode notes below. So go ahead and give App Figures a try for free. And if you like it, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Again, just go to appfigures.com and try it for free. Use our special code or the link in our show notes below to get 30% off for the next three months. I want to thank AppFigures for sponsoring our show. Now, I remember a long time ago, back in a previous life when I was a .NET developer, um, Mm -hmm. Microsoft had like a SQLite, or was it SQL Server Compact Edition, I believe. Okay. Um, And that... That was essentially like a SQL Server file you could put with a Windows mobile app, more or less, Mm -hmm. or with any sort of app where you just need something really... You don't need a full server on an app, and you don't expect consumers to have a server on their machine. Like, essentially has like some sort of compact database that you can have attached to your .NET application. Um, And it sounds like 
that's more or less kind of what SQLite is doing to where you have like a file essentially that you can easily load up um, with a library and access similar to a database. Is that correct? Right. So SQLite is, I would consider a full featured SQL database. It's if you're familiar with writing SQL for Postgres or MySQL or Oracle, SQLite is going to feel very similar. There's a you can pull the file off the phone, you can put it onto your Mac, you can load SQLite on the command line, and it feels like you're using any of the tools uh, for a major database. And uh, there's transactions, you know, there's uh, journaling, you know, there's a lot of features within that. It's just it's meant to be a single connection database and very lightweight, very memory friendly. Uh, it's meant for environments where there aren't a ton of resources. So it's it's really easy to debug as well. If you have a user with a problem, you could have that file copied and attached to an email, and you're talking kilobytes of data. And you could get that file emailed to you, and you could at least look at the data from that person's phone just by plopping it onto your desktop and then launching SQLite on the command line and looking at the tables in there. Right. Yeah, it's essentially like direct access to more or less um, a SQL database. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some good like libraries or fam- frameworks or Swift packages for managing um, and accessing a SQLite database in Swift? So I would recommend if the project that you're working on uh, already is using SQLite directly, or if it's something that uh, you'd like to try out, or if you have an app that you know needs to squeak every bit of kilobyte of memory out, uh, I would try understanding how to use SQLite directly. Okay. And that would, so in you can access the C libraries uh, that Apple provides in Swift as well as Objective-C. They're tricky, and you have to really understand the lifecycle of the database. Uh, like you have to make sure to close the connection when the app is backgrounded or closed. There's cursors and a lot of a lot of technical things that are, people take for granted. But if you don't do it right, you can totally screw up the database. Uh, there is a wrapper that I know of by Stephen Sellis, I think, called SQLite. Yeah, that's the one that I've used on some apps. There's Stephen Sellis's. And I know like a big one that is really popular for the Objective-C crowd is uh, FMDB. Um, mm-hmm. I hear about that one a lot. And then there's one that's been started recently called GRDB, which is essentially FMDB, but um, more more Swifty, so to speak. Cool. Um, but it's interesting. Like you think you're better off having like direct access to the SQLite interface in C, essentially, uh, as opposed to using a more uh, more of an abstraction. It sounds like. I would say. It makes the most sense for the unique situation that you're in, but I would say there is benefit to learning the primary way, the the most painful way of using (laughs) uh, SQLite uh, to understand the benefit that these wrappers are giving you. And when you run into problems with the wrappers, uh, then you can understand the errors because you probably have experienced a similar condition with uh, the C libraries directly. Um, it's sort of like when Swift came out, a lot of people are saying like, you really should learn Objective-C first, then learn Swift, or at least take the time to learn Objective-C so you can understand these errors. And it's still kind of the case today, but you can now learn Swift first 
and be fine. But uh, I think in this case that, you know, you cannot rely upon the wrapper alone to help you debug things because there could be errors or there could be bugs in the wrapper itself. So... Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, that's like just a computer science 101 here. We're going to learn how to do memory management and, you know, how registers work. And then we take that to a next level of abstraction in order to like, yep. okay, now we know what's going on underneath the hood and things like that. Um, luckily, like these libraries, most of them are open. They're all open source. So at least you can see what's going on in case you run into an issue, which I have, right. uh, by the way. But like, yeah, that's a really good point about abstraction. The other thing, too, is that the big gotcha with using any type of C interface is data types maybe not matching properly or there's just some nuance between conversion of uh, certain numbers to or certain objects structs and swift over to what it representation is and see there's always a potential that if you have a database on a device that was using an older version of swift or if they uh were on a 32-bit architecture which that doesn't happen anymore but um and you go to upgrade and restore from a backup is that data going to be restored properly when that the person launches the app next um you know there's a lot of like unknowns in there that could get you but um, it's just the wrapper doesn't necessarily care for all that or account for, account for all of that. Um, but if you're doing the C code directly, there's also a chance that you're not going to do it right. So <laughs> yep, uh, got to balance it out. What are like some optimizations uh, people should be aware of if they're going to be doing SQLite with their application? So there's... And a lot of people who do core data are probably aware of this as well. Uh, SQLite has the option to do like journaling so that there's a quicker way of writing things to disk in quotes. Um, doing air quotes here, you can't see that. Um, <laughs> and the, the journaling kind of lets the stuff happen in memory. And then when the disk is available, it writes it off into this journal and then it keeps track of things in order. So if things have to get undone, I'm not like super great understanding like the technical things of what the journaling all gets you. But I do know that people tend to turn the journaling off because it ends up creating multiple files on the disk. There's the main SQLite database and then there's a wall file and then uh, there's one other file. And sometimes those, from some reason they get janky and trying to open up the SQLite database, things may get corrupted and so a lot of people tend to turn off journaling to make life easier. I think the benefits of journaling are outweighed by the fact that these devices nowadays are really fast. We have pretty good amounts of memory. And even if everything's on the main thread, you tend not to see much hanging up in the UI. The other thing, too, is that there are pragma statements in SQLite. And pragma is P-R-A-G-M-A. Mm-hmm. It's a way of doing functions to modify some of the internal f- settings of SQLite. And um, if you're doing like a intensive, like large amount of data, you may have to increase like the amount of memory that uh, the cursor size is using in SQLite so that you can put more into uh, a bunch of like inserts before you would commit to the database. I've never had to deal with it. Thankfully, a lot of that stuff is there. So if you do run into some glitches that you can change those things around, but it's a fully functional, a fully featured database. There's a lot there that you can tweak and turn and break as well. <laughs> You're right. Well, that gets us to 
probably the more, I don't know, recommended choice, I suppose, on Apple platforms. And that's uh, core data, which mm-hmm. is really what Apple recommends folks use for local database storage. What is the purpose of core data? Why, why has Apple promoted that as a more default choice when building an application? Sure. Uh, so I, before I did mobile apps, I did enterprise Java. So I wrote. Oh, I'm so uh, sorry. Mostly, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that. Like I, I have some fond memories of that. Uh, the Java itself was meh, not that cool, but like some of the architectural stuff we were doing with servers and middleware. And uh, I actually liked the Spring framework, oddly enough. But the thing that I liked the most was this thing called Hibernate. And it's a ORM object relational mapping tool. And it mapped Java classes to SQL tables. So we were using, I think, mostly Oracle at the time. And it was a way to take your data structures that you're familiar with in code and then have them persist out to your database. And you didn't have to write all of the wiring code in between to get things to work. And Hibernate gave you a lot of caching and there was automatic transaction management. So when I got into mobile development um, and I saw Core Data come out in iPhone OS 3.0, it was like obvious to me that this is something I needed to use. I thought it was exactly an ORM, but Core Data is actually different. It is not uh, an ORM. It is a object graph. So it's it's more taking the object and then persisting it, and it just happens to be using a database behind the scenes. But it is less of a mapping tool and more of um, persisting the graph of an object. It is a, uh, yeah, it does use SQLite more or less behind the scenes, but obviously, like you said, there's even more abstraction to it where it's not just an ORM. And you don't have to use SQLite with Core Data. If you want oh, really? to dump out, you can dump it out to XML files, text files. Jason? You can write your own persistence container uh, for for Core Data if you feel like it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat to where um, I think I heard of Hibernate um, when I was a .NET developer because we had some Java folks that moved over to doing .NET and then that's when Microsoft started doing their own ORM uh, stuff. I'm a big fan of ORMs. Um, I, I've done a lot of like Vapor lately and Fluent is fantastic as far as an ORM is concerned. But it seems like, like yeah, like you said, core data is even a layer of abstraction on top of that. Yep, and there's so the thing that core data gives you is the ability to visually create your object model and then create the Swift files so that you can touch that mapping or the models in uh, your code. So it's like it almost inverses the place that you create the data structures instead of it starting in the code. You actually start it in the core data visual model, and then that way you can uh, make sure that it's a consistent data model throughout your app. Core data also has the idea of contexts, which are places in memory to load data, make changes, and they're more like clipboards than anything, so you don't have to save them. If you just want to bring up a copy of the context to do some things on a screen and then just destroy it when you're done, uh, you can keep it separate from what other screens are using within the app. Um, there's a ton of caching, but it's an incredibly complex tool. And I will say that it has had the worst documentation out of all of the frameworks that I've used uh, with Apple over the years. It got really good about six years ago. 
And then they stopped updating that documentation. And it's been terrible since iOS 13. Like it's the documentation is on the class level, and there's no really great overarching document that's been updated about core data. So if you have the question of like, what is core data? There's really no no great place to go to, except maybe the WWDC videos uh, to get a crash course on what's really important to learn about core data. Well, the good thing is that just gives you an opportunity. Well, both of us an opportunity to write more articles and books on core data. This is true. Yep. <laughs> like like Erica said a few episodes ago, uh, the good thing about stuff that's undocumented it just means that uh, there's a market there for writing documentation for it. So thank you, Apple. And- that's um, actually how I got involved with Ray Wunderlich. <laughs> I started writing a, a blog post on unit testing with Core Data. Ray saw it and he's like, hey, we're writing a Core Data book. You want to come help? And that, that book is still there. We update it every year. I just added a CloudKit chapter to it. So it's one of the most popular long-lived books that Ray offers. So, yeah. Thanks, Apple. Mm-hmm. Keep it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are... Why would someone prefer the abstraction of core data over SQLite? Like, how would you go about that decision process? I think core data is something that you can use even in the smallest app. It doesn't take much code now to get it up and running. Where it gets complex for app developers is the longer that your app is in the store and the more updates you make to the app, that's when data models can get complex. So if you're using SQLite, uh, and you start adding fields to your database, then you have to make sure that when the app is launched, that you keep track of what version your database is in. And then if there's been a change, then you have to manually migrate the user's database from like adding fields or dropping fields or adding tables. Or what if there's a new table and it is a you move data from one table to another, and now there's a join between them. So then you have to write code to create this table and then fill the data in. And that's all got to happen during the launch process. Technically, you could write a UI for it and just show a progress bar. But that mapping from data model, the data model in SQLite can get really unwieldy. And it's it can be hard to test as well. Core data has the idea of model versioning built in its core. From step one, if you want to create another mapping uh, or model version, I keep using the word mapping, it's actually just a model. If you want to create a second model, like you've now added new fields, you just go into the visual editor, create a new version number, add the field, and then when the app launches, Core Data will look at the store and says, oh, look, it's not the most current version, and it'll figure out how to map this current store to what the uh, app is saying is the newest store version. So essentially like migration, in other words. Yep, yeah, migration happens, I'd like to say automagically, but there's a lot of things that can also break migration uh, that you have to be aware of. Like what would those be? So if you, the thing that's not terribly clear when you start getting into model versioning with core data is that your app, let's say your app's been in the store for a year, And you've done a release every month, like clockwork. And but you've only had to change the 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 model for core data maybe a couple times. So someone has version one from January, and in March you decide that you're going to add a table, or sorry, you're going to add a class in your code, but it's got 
data from a different class and now you're extracting it. There's a relationship there. And so in core data, you've moved the table or you've moved the class over in the model version and you created a, um, you can do a mapping model, which you can programmatically tell it, okay, now take data from this class and put it into this class uh, when you're migrating from this version to this version. So great. Your app versions are one, two, three, four, five, but your data model versions are one and two. So in March, now you're using core data version two for your model. Assuming that everybody keeps their app up to date every month, then when you come out with a new model, say in June, then someone's going to go from model one to model two to model three because they're updating their app every month. But what if someone... For whatever reason, I don't understand why people don't always update, but they decided (laughs) not to update the app from the App Store. Maybe they didn't have enough space on their device. Maybe they're not allowed to do it because it's a lockdown device from their company. Who knows? Uh, And they skip version two, or they skip the March update. And they finally, so they go from version one to version six in June. Well, the app, the storage on their phone using version one of the app is using version one of your core data model. So when they go to install version six from the app store, core data is going to look at what's in the store and it says, okay, you're using version one. It actually looks at hashes, but anyway, it says, okay, it's version one. It's not even going to look at version two at all. It's going to figure out how to map from version one to version three. So if you had things happen in version two that are important for your app, And they're not easily thought of on how to migrate into version three. Um, You can cause a a crash on startup because it can't interpolate how to do this automatic mapping uh, from one to three. Uh, We've solved this in the WordPress apps. Uh, We've used a thing called iterative migration. It's not something that's baked into core data. What we do is when the app launches, we look at the model that the store on disk is using and we only upgrade one version at a time through the core data model progression until we get to the current model. So that lets us go through version one to version two and then version two to version three. So we're not losing any of those steps in between. It's a very easy thing to overlook. It's a very thing, a very easy thing to miss in testing. Um, but it's like the number one way that you can screw up your user's database on their phone and then they got to delete the app and reinstall it. Yeah, which you don't want to have to explain that to your users. Yeah. Hey folks, I wanted to let you know about the host of our podcast, Transistor FM. Transistor has been an awesome podcast host for the last two years I've used it. And what I really like about it is all the great features it offers people who want to really run a professional podcast. I love the automated integrations with Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, MailChimp, etc. They offer really great analytics, which I use quite frequently. And they have updated their UI to look fantastic and be usable on the iPad as well. One thing I've been thinking about lately with a lot of the stuff in the news is the importance of running a independent podcast. We all know about stories about YouTubers and app developers running into issues with all sorts of gatekeepers. And one of the places where we have that kind of independence is in podcasting. 
Unfortunately, there's some hosts which can have an inordinate amount of uh, control over your podcast and act like a gatekeeper, like many of some of these other companies that we've been hearing about lately. Things like ad insertion or control over how your podcast is published and broadcasted, things like that, that if you're running a professional podcast is uh, either risky or can lower the quality of your show. Something about Transistor is that you own the podcast, it is yours, and you have that complete independence. It works on multiple platforms, so you're not locked down to someone like Spotify, for instance. You have a completely open RSS feed, but also they have a lot of tools to help you run a professional podcast as well, like the analytics, but also things like being able to have a private RSS link if you want to run some sort of uh, membership uh service along with your podcast as well, or you want to be able to only allow certain people to listen to your show, which I think is awesome and a really great feature. So again, I highly recommend checking Transistor out. Let them know you heard about Transistor from us. Go to the link in the show notes below to give Transistor a try today for 14 days. So what are some other like optimizations that folks aren't aware of when they're using core data? I think um, it's easy to overlook what fields that you're going to be using in any type of like fetch request. And uh, that's the thing. If you're writing queries to use uh, the data out of core data, you don't write SQL. You can, I mean, technically you can, but um, what you're writing are predicates. So using NS predicate, NS predicate. Um, which isn't just a core data thing. You can use it everywhere in uh, iOS. But you write a predicate. Uh, you have sort descriptors. So you can tell it how you want the data sorted coming out of it. And then you execute a fetch request. And any of the fields that you're trying to limit on, so think of it in SQL, anything that you have in your where clause, you want to tend to have those indexed. So if there's a switch somewhere and so you have a, a one through five for a particular field in the database, and you have a lot of data, it's worth indexing that field. And if you go into the core data model, you can look at all the individual fields and you can actually turn on indexing for a field. Um, and it's not always obvious that those things should or can be done because usually what it ends up being is that the if you're doing something on the UI, for a primary thread, main thread, um, you'll just see pausing. And then you have to dig in deep into debugging core data and using instrumentation around it. And it's not always obvious that you have to add indexes and optimize your, your predicates. Are there any good libraries or frameworks for besides what Apple provides for managing core data or tools out there? I know there's some good apps out there for like just taking a core data database and, and dealing with it. But how about like, especially dealing with it in Swift? So there's... Um, I don't know. I think uh, Magical Record is the one that comes to mind. Um, Saul Mora created a wrapper around core data that uh, lets you make a lot less hassle to get a core data stack up and running. Uh, I think there's some magic there for creating the core data classes that you're using for your managed objects. Mm, okay. So I haven't used Magical Record in quite a bit of time, but I know that it still has a very strong following and it's kept up to date. I tend to just go for the most painful thing and use core data directly because there's so much that you can get wrong. And it's nice just knowing how to use the editor well. 
um, understanding the, the things that can go wrong with how you create your models and your relationships. And um, I feel like there's a lot that I, f- there feels like there's bugs within the core data, the framework itself provided by Apple. And it's hard to really get to the core of what, if this is actually an iOS or a framework bug or if it's a bug in your code. Yeah, And right. the more wrappers you add on top of core data, it just makes it harder and harder to figure out where to start. And then I've used Core Data Editor if, like, I want to if I'm building an app um, and I just want to edit the core data directly um, mm. for development purposes. I found mm-hmm. that really useful for, like, you know, I want to see what the heck is going on with the core data underneath. It's by uh, Christian Kyle. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. But that's a really good like developer tool for like directly editing your core data. Of course, you know, be aware that directly editing core data is not suggested. But as a developer, if you want to tinker with stuff, uh, that's probably uh, or debug things. That's probably a good way to do it. And actually, uh, it's not necessarily a library for core data, but I use an app called Sim Folders. It's S I M P H O L D E R S. It's just a task tray type of thing, um, or menu item up top, and it shows all of your simulators. And you can look at the simulator and then find the sandbox for an app yes. installed in the simulator. And then I use it's an app called Bases. Uh, it loads. The SQLite file in a visual interface, so you can look at all the tables, you can look at the fields, and you can technically edit. But I've never had really great luck directly editing SQLite, um, especially with the journaling enabled. It seems like when it loads up, it tends to ignore things. So I try not to edit as much as I can, yeah, uh, unless I'm trying to break something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. So one of the benefits I've heard of using something like SQLite over core data is the fact that um, if you have a cross-platform app. So for instance, like you have an app on, you know, Android or even desktop app um, you, that's on Windows, mm-hmm. there's benefits to having like a same, the same database on all your platforms. And so people tend to go with SQLite. But then that's where um, something like Realm has come in and filled that gap. That's been really popular. Have you used Realm before? Uh, I have not. I've actually, I've looked into it and I've you know read through some of the tutorials and um, so I conceptually know what Realm is. And actually, back in the day, I used a thing um, called Parse. I don't know if you remember that tool. Facebook bought them. Yep. Yep. And disabled them and got rid of them. But uh, that's a whole other story. Right. Uh, but it's essentially that. It's a, it's a very nice way of wrapping your data. And it deals with sync automatically. And uh, it makes life a lot easier in a lot of different ways. Like the big thing with core data that would make me not use it is if you have a lot of threading in your application, if you're dealing with data on different threads, you're doing a lot of stuff in the background and you have a lot of developers working on an app, it can be hard making sure that you're not passing uh, managed objects between threads and it doesn't always break the app, but it can cause a lot of goofy stuff to happen. Uh, And so like realm fixes a lot of that. There's a lot more safety around passing objects between threads. Um, it, it just seems like it was built in mind to improve how core data doesn't do great with threading. I was going to ask about that. Like, how do you deal with a multi-threaded app when you're using SQLite or core data? Like, what's, 
is is there a typical pattern to use to make sure that you don't crash your app? Well, SQLite, I know you have to basically have like a mediator between yes. the data the database and their code. So like uh, you have to synchronize the calls to the code that gets written out to the database. Core Data handles it differently. So there's there's a lot more safety in Core Data, but there's also okay. a lot of ways to use it unsafely. Um, so if you are doing the proper thing with having a managed context per thread and you're saving correctly and you're not doing a lot of automatic merging between contexts and you're using a background writer to disk, uh, it takes a lot to break that. And okay. so it's it's more about establishing guidelines for your team to follow proper protocol and to have proper testing of and reviewing of people's codes to make sure that you're not potentially passing a managed object to a function then that runs something in the background and uses that managed object for values on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make sure to pass in the actual values into that background function so that you're not dealing with uh, faults in core data. Um, so it's there's there's a lot of ways that you can shoot yourself in the foot when doing threading. But when you do it right, core data works pretty dang well. What are some protocols that you would suggest um, a team lead follow when they're using uh, something like a like a core data or SQLite? I would say uh, there needs to be a person or a, a couple people that are sort of blessed as the the experts or the ones that are really in charge of the health of the data model. It's one thing to create new fetch requests and things like that, that's fine. But if you're changing, if your app has to change the data model, I think there needs to be a a formal, deeper review of the data model changes to make sure that they're done correctly. Uh, Because like we said before, if your app launches and then crashes because the data model is not great, uh, that's not great for your users. And it's sometimes a direct uninstall and never reinstall on the phone. Right, right. It's hard enough to keep engagement on an app, let alone make people reinstall your app. No, I think the other, the only other thing that I can recommend is that there's, with core data, when you model a version, the trick is if you're doing branching, so if you're doing like Git flow and you're, you're mm-hmm. creating a release branch and you have like a bug fix in that release branch, really, really make sure that you're back porting those fixes into like your main code base uh, before you cut your next release. Because if there's, I've had fixes before, we've had to fix the data model in a release branch and create a new model version that was never merged back into develop or to your the master branch. Uh, and then that new version, that fixed model version, goes away, it gets disappeared. And then it's really hard to track it down later on. So it's, you have to be very fastidious with how you model and how you manage the fixes and versioning down the road. So now I want to talk about perhaps the biggest challenge with any sort of local database storage, and that's syncing it with the cloud. Mm -hmm. Um, I know Apple's made improvements to that um, in core data as far as like being able to sync with CloudKit. What are some tips or tricks or methodologies for being able to do that? So there's, um, there's two things to consider what syncing means. If you're talking to an existing API that, uh, like the, in the case of WordPress, if you're talking to a WordPress site 
then they're, the version that you're talking about of syncing is to pull the data off the WordPress site and have a local store of it. If your app is sort of in its own ecosystem and it's just syncing data between maybe if somebody has an iPad and an iPhone, uh, that's where I think something like CloudKit makes complete sense. Uh, you can easily sync data between your devices without having to do much with adding uh, data models. You have to deal with migration still, especially if you're using CloudKit into core data. Um, but the real key is if you're trying to hit a business system and you're trying to pull data off, the the thing that SQLite and Core Data will give you is a it's a transformation logic between the API's response and how it's stored on the device. So you're actually making your device more tolerant of APIs being changed over time. If you were just hitting the remote site and then maybe storing that in memory or relying on URL caching, then your app is really not going to be tolerant of if that API decides to change any of the response uh, structure. That being said, with WordPress, you can install a plugin on your site and totally change how the site works. So that also changes the API. And we have to be a lot more defensive of APIs, so we can't always expect certain fields to be there. Mm-hmm. And that also translates to our, our model on disk. We can't make a field required in every case because it's possible that that field doesn't exist on somebody else's site. So, yeah, right. and think about the plugin ecosystem, how, how that, that affect that. Right. Even if you're using Realm or CloudKit to sync between different devices that a user has for your app, you also have to be aware of the model version that they're using. And the thing with CloudKit, and I don't know about Realm exactly, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be close, that it's easier to add fields to your data model. But when you start deleting fields, uh, you can't guarantee that every app version that a person's using on all their devices is at the same version. So the data model could be mixed across devices. So even if you're adding fields and that makes the app not crash, you actually have to put conditional code in the new versions to deal with data that doesn't have that field because the field will just be blank when you add it. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so you have to still you have to account for that data possibly not being there, even though it's synced automatically for you and it's there. And then when that device gets upgraded, then locally it has to like deal with that as well. So it's it seems like CloudKit is the solution for everything, but it also brings its own issues uh, because you have to deal with fragmented versions across the ecosystem for your app. Yep. Yep. So, was there anything this year with WWDC that you were particularly uh, excited about or interested in? Sadly, not much changed with Core Data uh, this year with WWDC. There's a few improvements, and uh, I looked at some of the APIs that changed. Like we're updating the Core Data book for Ray, and there aren't going to be too many changes there for us to have to to kick out the new version of the book. Uh, I was hoping for some better things with CloudKit. I know that iOS 13 brought a lot of improvements for CloudKit, especially with it being hooked into core data natively, having right. a pers- persistence container. I actually want to play around with CloudKit more, and I'd like to try to use it more with like an Android app and a web app. I know that they say they support it, and they've got the JavaScript framework and all that, um, but I want to prove it out to see how well it would actually work to be the back end for an app. Uh, well, 
get a hold of me because um, I am I have an app that uses the uh, that does uh, server side calls uh, through Vapor. So okay. essentially, um, it uses their REST API, which essentially means you could use it anywhere. Uh, I have okay. an article I'm hoping to get out by the end of September. Uh, so listeners, uh, check that out. So I will I will try get a hold of me. But yeah, we'll, we should talk about that offline. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah I needed to do that with uh, I have a web web app slash watch app heart twitch that does that. So yeah, it's, it's definitely very usable. I was surprised how easy it was to get it going. It's, um, it's good to see that uh, there are options out there that aren't necessarily locking you in. Cause that's the thing, like when cloud kit first came out, I'm like, Oh, great. It's only going to help me in iOS. And there's as much as I love Apple and iOS, there's days that I just get frustrated with it being so locked in. Great. Um, and I've looked at Firebase to be able to potentially do some sort of syncing between devices. But as with all of these things, it's really the cost that is what it comes down to is how much is it going to cost you to run this app in the cloud? I've used Simperium, which is the thing that actually backs SimpleNote, to do some syncing on a migraine diary app that I had in the store for 10 years. And it was great because I didn't have to deal with Kind of, uh, all the complexities around payments and stuff. It was sort of just free for a large amount of users, which is what I get. CloudKit feels like it's free for a lot, but it's not mm-hmm. really... Uh, I don't really trust that something can go pear-shaped and then all of a sudden you're using a ton of data. Uh, that's my big fear with using any type of platform like that, that you, all of a sudden you got a you know $100,000 data bill <laughs> right? <laughs> because yep. you wrote a long line of code. <laughs> Have you worked with Swift UI at all yet? I've started uh, playing around with it because with iOS 14, it feels like it's more serious that you could do a significant portion of your app. I, I've heard from people saying that they're frustrated that Core Data doesn't work directly with Swift UI, but in fact, it's not that hard to integrate it, uh, especially if you like shove a context into an environment um, variable or property. Right. I still think there needs to be work done there. Yeah. I was surprised this year that there wasn't a lot of... That, that in particular was an API that I, I was particularly um, puzzled why. There wasn't improvements on the on the combined front because essentially once you get combined, you get Swift UI. Um, mm-hmm. I did that talk last week at uh, 360iDev about core, how to map core location and other older delegate pattern APIs over to um, to combine. For mm-hmm. Swift UI projects and uh, Donnie Walls, I'll have a link uh, about fetching objects with core data uh, in a Swift UI project. So it's definitely doable. And it sounds like, yeah, essentially using environment object is probably the way to go and and, and mapping it that way. Right. And there, um, if, uh, if anybody's used core data before uh, with the old NS um, fetch results controller, uh, the new methods from iOS 13 and older with. Uh, the diffable data sources, like to me, that is like I was looking for something that, that as striking as that to be supported with Swift UI, um, because we've had long problems with data crashes because of the number of rows after a change in the mm-hmm, store mm-hmm. causes a crash, yeah. and still haven't gotten those solved. And uh, like we've dealt with some engineers at Apple, and they've told us a lot of great things on how to fix that, but in the end, they're just saying use diffable data sources. That's why we wrote it because there was no way to get around a lot of the crashes from the old code. 
Right. Where are you hoping for improvements uh, in the local database storage space? I think what would be great for me is to have a hosted middleware somewhere. Like if there was a way I could hook up an API to CloudKit so I could have server-side code talking to, say, the WordPress site so that the actual fetch from the WordPress site happens on Apple servers, and then all I get to the device is the result data, and then that's synced in a way that's fast and reliable. That would be awesome for me. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen. I don't know if Apple's going to ever let you write cloud code. That's where Parse was kind of going back in the day, where you could write code in their uh, their cloud. Um, but I think that for apps that have to talk to multiple servers, um, you're always bringing the radio up. You're using the cellular stuff. You're using battery power. And if I could reduce the amount of calls that I need to make to sync the data, even just for a single device, um, I think that's where we're going to excel down the road, especially when you have people with watches and if you want the data synced between the watch and the phone and they're not in the same Wi-Fi network. And I just think sync in general is going to be uh, the most important thing down the road. You know, don't get frustrated with core data if that's uh, what you're having to use with whatever project you're on or if you're interested in starting. It's like you mentioned earlier, there's a there's a ton of blog posts. There's a ton of tutorials out there. There's a lot of people willing to help out. Um, it's easy to get it wrong and it's easy to get frustrated with some of Apple's documentation on it. Um, but it is a pretty solid framework. It's been around well before iOS or iPhone OS even came out. Um, so it's it's worth using. And I think it's going to stick around for a long time with Apple. Thank you so much for coming on, Aaron. This has been fantastic and such a great topic. Where can people find you online? Uh, let's see. I, I blog, not as often as I should, considering I work for WordPress.com, uh, at, <laughs> Aaron, uh, at uh, Aaron.blog, so A-A-R-O-N.blog. Uh, I am also Astral Bodies pretty much everywhere. It's A-S-T-R-A-L-B-O-D-I-E-S. And on Twitter and GitHub, if there's anything with the WordPress apps or WooCommerce or SimpleNode or Tumblr will eventually be open source as well. Um, feel free to reach out. And what's the name of the book again that you did with Ray Winderlich? It is the Core Data by Tutorials. And we'll have a link to that as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking about, about data. People can find me at Leo G. Dion on Twitter. And my company is BrightDigit, brightdigit.com or at brightdigit on Twitter. Uh, if you could spend some time uh, posting a review to Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. And if you have any topics you'd like us to talk about, uh, reach out to me on Twitter and let me know. I'd love to have some great ideas on topics and we're always looking for new guests. Thank you again for joining us for this episode and we will talk to you again. Bye. Bye.